This morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Joshua. Uh, We're going to be camping out there mostly in Joshua chapter 1. We're going to be going to some other places, though, so be ready to uh, have your Bible in hand and going to a bunch of different places. Uh, One of the things I'm really, really passionate about, and as Anna mentioned, we're doing a class on Sunday nights called Biblical Theology, reading the Bible with an Emmaus perspective. And uh, coming out of that, there's a lot of ways in which we can view the Bible as if it's all connected to one central truth. That's one of the things that I believe, that everywhere you go in the Bible, regardless of what story you're reading, what character you're talking about, whatever passage you're in, it'll always connect back to one central idea. And I would even say that it's all extraordinarily concerned with that central truth. Your Bible, uh, even though it has 66 books and has over 30,000 verses, it has over uh, almost 1,200 chapters, it has over 40 authors, I would assert that the Bible has one story. And it's not, it's, your Bible is not a loosely connect, collected sort of archive of, of ancient myths and legends. Um, you know, interestingly enough, um, there's a study I always like to refer to when I'm talking about this kind of stuff. Uh, have you ever heard of the State of Theology Survey? Have you ever heard of this before? It's a fascinating study. Basically what they do, uh, a couple of ministries, Ligonier and I think Lifeway, a couple of others, what they do is they have all of these statements, theological statements, statements about the faith, what, uh, different truths about the Bible or the church or the gospel or whatnot. And they just ask them to general people in the public, uh, adults, uh, younger people, older people, all different backgrounds. And they ask them to respond, you know, strongly agree, uh, strongly disagree, and whatnot. And one of the ones that I always look at whenever they, they do this every two years one of the ones I always look at is what people are saying about the Bible. And the statement reads something, I should have wrote it down. Uh, the statement reads something like this. The Bible is a, uh, a collection of myths, but it is not literally true. It sends, essentially, it says something like that. Um, the Bible is, has lots of myths and stories, but it is not literally true. And wouldn't you know that in 2022, the last time they did the survey... That 53% of U.S. adults agreed with that statement. Over half agreed that the Bible was not literally true. It has some good stories. It has some really uh, great myths that can teach us things. But it's not literally true. And uh, I think that stat is quite alarming. I think it's quite, uh, it should get us to realize that, and I would even assert that one of the biggest problems, not just with the culture, but I would say with the church today, is the fact that we don't really know what our Bible says. And we don't know what it's supposed to do. Why do we have all of these 66 books? Why do we have all of these stories? Why do we have all of these different uh, examples of people, especially in the Old Testament, doing things that make us uncomfortable? Why are they there? Well, I would assert that it's not because you know, the Old Testament is some sort of better version of Aesop's fables. You know, like the boy who cried wolf or the lion and the mouse. It, this is not a better version of that. Uh, all of the Bible, everywhere you go, it has a singular point. Every story is going to revolve around a particular narrative. And of course, I would assert that that narrative is, is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. Every single story in the Bible is always tethered back to the revelation of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Hold your place in Joshua. Go with me to Luke chapter 24. This is the place I always love. This is probably my favorite story, one of my favorite stories. I say that about a lot of stories in the Bible, but this is one of my favorite ones. Luke 24, a great scene in the Scriptures Where Jesus reveals, right after his resurrection, I think this very truth, this amazing truth that everything is about him. And in fact, his words are, everything is concerned about me. If you remember uh, the story, you can start in verse 13. I'm not going to read all the verses. I'll just kind of go through it really quickly. Um, In verse 13, there's two disciples. They're walking on the road to Emmaus. It's, It's three days after the crucifixions, which should make our alarm bells going off because Jesus has already resurrected. These two disciples, they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus a couple miles down the road. And they're having a conversation. And they're talking about everything that just happened back in the big city. The fact that their teacher, their beloved 
beloved mentor was crucified as a Roman traitor, as a blasphemer. And they're talking about all that. And then suddenly, Jesus, they don't know it's Jesus. Jesus just appears right next to them. And he starts asking them, hey, what are you guys talking about? You look really sad. What are you talking about? And one of the disciples says, haven't you heard about all the stuff that happened back in Jerusalem? And then Jesus prompts him. He says, what happened? And then the disciple, his name is Cleopas, as it tells us here in this chapter. He says, about all of this stuff, we had this, we fought, well, I'll just read it anyways. Um, Verse, uh, verse 19. And Jesus said to them, what things? And they, Cleopas, said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, It is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but but him they did not see. And notice Jesus' response. And he said to them, O foolish ones, And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He calls these two guys fools. Not for the reason that you think. The reason why he calls them fools is because they have failed to read their Bible properly. You know, for them, they're reading the 39 books of the Old Testament. They're reading those portions of Scripture. They're, they're familiar with them, perhaps. They learned about them in synagogue. They always heard them whenever they went to that place. And they always heard them from a specific viewpoint. And they had come to believe, yes, that the Messiah, the promised Messiah of Israel, what was he going to come and do? He was going to come, and he was going to raise up Israel's armies. He was going to lead this overthrow of the Roman government, and Israel would be brought back to Davidic glory with the Messiah on the throne, and then the disciples, of course, being his, his co-leaders of this new Israelite kingdom. And then, suddenly, Jesus died. You can imagine if that's your viewpoint and you're holding up Jesus as the Messiah who is going to come and completely change the political fabric of Israel in those days. And then he dies. It wasn't just your friend that's dying. It's all your hopes are dying too. See, that's why they're kind of foolish because their hopes were in a foolish hope. Because As they reveal, we thought that it was him. And Jesus says, you've missed the point. How slow of heart to believe what the prophets were actually saying. As he says, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then wonderful verse, and beginning with Moses and all the scriptures, or excuse me, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What does he do? Uh, he goes with, uh, uh, on that uh, road to, to Emmaus. Jesus takes these two disciples on one of the best Bible studies ever, and he shows them, beginning with Genesis, all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, all the way to the last prophet. And he says, all of this is concerning me. It's pointing to me. I'm the point of it. And further down the same narrative, he does this later with the rest of the 12. Look at verse 44. Uh, This is after Jesus has walked into the room. He he, he walks through the wall, you remember, and everyone's just completely surprised and, and stunned. And Jesus said to them, verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then watch this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
I love this scene. Jesus opens the minds of his disciples, his followers, to where now they can finally see what it's all about. It's not about law-keeping per se. It's about seeing the law-fulfiller. It's about seeing Jesus, the sent one from God, who has been sent here from God himself to reveal God himself to us. Jesus is spelling it out for them. I'm the point. You see, this is, I'm going to spoil something, but it's from the 80s, so you should have seen it by now. <laughs> How many of you like Star Wars? I like, I like Star Wars. Empire Strikes Back is often regarded as the greatest Star Wars film ever to be put to film. And I love Star Wars. I love watching that film. Interestingly enough, Empire Strikes Back is known for what, right? Darth Vader revealing... That he's the father of Luke Skywalker. Sorry, spoiler alert. He's Luke Skywalker's father. That's a really important moment. Because the villain, the guy you've always seen as the bad guy, is suddenly revealed to have a lot more depth to his story. This is a huge revelation that he reveals at the end of that movie. That I'm your father. It changes Luke. It changes everything about that movie. But what we could say then is that that revelation not only changes everything before, it also changes everything after it too. If you were to watch Star Wars without acknowledging that Darth Vader is Luke's father, you would be missing the point of the movie, right? Because that's the point. It's about this father-son dynamic and all the things that are, that are, that are uh, tethered to that idea and how it's fractured and all those relationships that are changed. And I would assert, in a silly way perhaps, but I think it's, it's very resonant, that the same thing is happening in Luke 24. This is the revelation that changes everything before and everything after it. To read the Bible without Luke 24 as our common hermeneutic, the way in which we interpret everything else, we're ignoring perhaps the most important piece of information that comes from Jesus' mouth himself. It changes everything before, as he says, all of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, they all concern me, and it changes everything afterwards too. And in fact, this testimony that is given here to Jesus' apostles that he is the center, he's the climax of every single story. This is what leads right in to uh, these same apostles who a couple days before this moment were dispersed, they were scattered, they were scared out of their minds because their teacher was just arrested. These same bumbling disciples flip the page to Acts, what are they doing? They're turning the world upside down with their preaching. And what are they preaching? What was their message? Well, I'll just take you to a couple places. You can write them down or you can follow along. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Peter at Pentecost, he's preaching. Acts 2, 36. Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts 3, 18. But what God foretold, again Peter, foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he, Jesus, has thus fulfilled. Acts 4 verse 10. Let it be known, Peter again, to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 5, verse 42, at the end of the the very next chapter. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the Messiah, is Jesus. And on and on you can go. The, the sermon of the apostles in the book of Acts is a really simple sermon. Jesus is the Christ. He's the fulfiller of everything that God has revealed in his word. 
And that's why I would say again that I think the greatest need in the church today is a recovery of this truth. Is a recovery of the truth that wherever you turn in the Bible, the Bible is going to be found whispering the name of Jesus, so to speak. You could cut the Bible anywhere. Is it going to bleed red? Is it going to show us something about the Christ? Is it going to show us something about who God's Son is and what He would come to do? All of the Bible is concerned with this story, the story of how God, from before the foundation of the world, has purposed and promised to reconcile all things to Himself. That's what it's about. It's, it's not just a history book. It's not just a book of poetry. It's not just a book of all of these other things. The, the Bible is a book of revelation. And it reveals God's only son to you and to me. And yeah, it takes 66 books to get there sometimes. But that's the point. All of them are so intimately and intricately intertwined into that revelation that you couldn't do without it. That reconciliation, that rescue plan that God has cooked up from before the foundation of the world is fulfilled in God's Son. And I would say this, that we do a disservice to ourselves and to those that we are teaching if we lead them to believe that the Bible is about anything else. And I would say even more pointedly that the Old Testament is is a breeding ground for this. That unfortunately, sometimes uh, the Old Testament has been a breeding ground for all kinds of sermons and lessons that leave us without any hope in the Lord Jesus. Instead, what do we do? We go, we go hero hunting, I call it. We go through the Bible and we, we hunt for heroes. Dare to be a Daniel. I, I don't mind that song. It's a fine song. Is that the point of Daniel's life? In some regard, yeah. But not ultimately. Stand up to your giants like David. No, you're not David. <laughs> you, don't, you, you don't stand up to Goliath like David. See, sometimes we make the Bible less than. If we make it about something other than Jesus if we scour the stories of the, of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and we try to like, extract moral lessons from our favorite Bible heroes, we're, we're missing the point. And that's not to say that there's no morals that are being presented. It's just to say that's not ultimate. It's not the premier thing we're supposed to take away. There's a truer, there's a better meaning embedded in every single page, in every single story. A writer for the ministry Nine Marks, Jeremy Lin, says this, that the, quote, that the Bible is not ultimately an instruction book for life or moral encyclopedia of do's and don'ts. It's a great drama, an epic saga in which Jesus Christ is the heroic leading man whose death and resurrection enable us to know him and be like him. That's what every bit of the Bible is about right there. It's a, a drama that unfolds, that reveals the deliverer. Christ himself. And I can think of no better way to show you this, rather than just tell you, I want to show you, than by looking at Joshua. We're finally getting there. (laughs) Joshua. You're in Joshua 1, and we're going to walk through some of these opening verses here of this book. Joshua is an exceedingly important character in the history and the life of the people of Israel. And it's interesting because for as much attention that Moses often gets as, as a man of history for the people of Israel, it is actually Joshua who surpasses Moses in, as sort of the, the ultimate Old Testament character that points us to Jesus. This is actually one of the themes of the book of Joshua itself as Joshua, this title figure, is, is, is seen outshining Moses. That's, you, know, uh, you can just look at it, we're not going to read it, but that's one of, the, one of the outcomes of chapter 12 of this book. And chapter 12 is an interesting chapter in the book of Joshua because it lists victories. In the first half of chapter 12, it lists victories, the victories of Moses. And in the last half of chapter 12, it lists the victories of Joshua. It lists all the, the kings that Joshua defeated. So you have Moses' kings that he defeated, you have Joshua's kings that he defeated. Moses has two, Joshua has 31. 
And you can get the point. What is it trying to do? It's showing you the ways in which Joshua has superseded his predecessor. And in fact, that's sort of the theme of the book, is that he's surpassing Moses as the heir apparent, so to speak, of God's people. Look at Joshua 4. Look at verse 14. This is after that moment of God's people crossing the Jordan. And notice what it says. It says, on that day, the day in which they crossed the Jordan, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they stood in awe of him. Notice this phrase. Just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. See, we can see... That Joshua is sort of not only taking up the reins, so to speak, as being the captain of God's people, but he's sort of uh, bringing all things to fruition. And in fact, you can see this even demonstrated by noting Moses' title. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. Notice what Moses is called. It says, um, The Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that, notice, Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. Moses, the servant of the Lord. And then flash forward all the way to Joshua chapter 24. Notice, you might already know where I'm going, but notice what Joshua, what he is referred to. Joshua 24, 29, the record of Joshua's death, it says, And after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. He is fulfilling the vacancy left behind by Moses. Joshua here becomes the true servant of the Lord. He's achieving what was promised to Moses, right? He is the one that is not just being promised to bring the people into the land of promise. He's actually doing it. You see, this is what we could say then. Joshua is the fulfiller of the promise, not just the receiver of the promise. And the law fulfiller eclipses the law giver. And this automatically makes my brain think of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 17, where John writes that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law fulfiller is exceeding, is surpassing the law giver. And so more specifically, what I want to show you throughout the book of Joshua, but especially in these first nine verses, that I think there's three ways in which we can... Uh, I'm a Baptist, so we have three points. It's, it's, you know, that's just how it rolls. In which we can notice, uh, we could call it the, the connective tissue of Joshua and Jesus. So first of all, the first sort of connecting point, if you will, is just his name. His, his name. And this is perhaps the most obvious one. And yet, I think it's the one that's overlooked. Notice Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. Here we're sort of more formally introduced. Joshua appears in earlier books of Scripture, but he's, he's introduced more formally here as this assistant to Moses who's suddenly been given this incredible charge, this incredible role of leading and shepherding God's people into the land of promise, into Canaan. He's the captain of God's people. And these words of God to Joshua are just freighted with responsibility, this huge calling that he's given by God himself. Imagine, put yourself in Joshua's position here as he's given this role to step into the shoes of someone like Moses. It could not have been easy to, to, to do that as a person like Joshua, being the one to, to take over after such a heroic leader of God's people as was Moses, the one who led God's people out of Egyptian bondage in the Exodus. 
Moses is sort of like uh, Israel's George Washington. No one wants to follow up that. No one wants to succeed that. But not only that, as we've just read, Joshua is now being told that he's the one to actually bring about all the things that were promised to Moses. As it says, verse 3, Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Just think about the weight of that. All of the history of God's people is being fulfilled through him. So not only does he have the weight of this calling to lead to God's people, he has the weight of being the fulfiller of history. And this is why I think God reassures him in verse 5 down through verse 9, over and over again, that he wouldn't be alone in this. Notice, notice that, verse, verse uh, 5, No man, God says to Joshua, shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous for You shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Over and over again, he's telling them, you can fulfill this calling, not because of you, but because I'm going to be with you. It was the presence of Almighty God that allowed Joshua to be strong and courageous and to carry out this weighty task that God had given to him. And that task is hidden within Joshua's name. Joshua is literally just a Hebrew name, which means literally Jehovah is salvation. Through Jehovah, salvation would come. And though, though we cannot ascribe so ultimate meaning to people's names, oftentimes in our sort of Western culture, we ascribe too little meaning to people's names. Oftentimes, there's lots embedded, especially in the Hebrew, in terms of what it's trying to show us or tell us. And especially here with Joshua, it's meaning that through him, the salvation of God's people was going to be brought about. That long ago promise the the promise given thousands of years ago to abraham is being fulfilled through joshua they wouldn't be wandering anymore they wouldn't be lost anymore they wouldn't be nomads anymore they wouldn't be unsettled anymore why they wouldn't be slaves anymore why because they would be settled in the land that god was giving to them This is what Joshua is bringing about in the book that bears his name. It's all about the fact that God is fulfilling his promises to his people through the man Joshua. And it just so happens that this corresponds exactly to the person of Jesus. What what does the name Jesus mean? Jehovah is salvation. It's literally just the Greek way to say Joshua. So, therefore, in a very true way, quite literally, Jesus is the true and better Joshua who comes to actually bring about God's promised salvation, not just for the people of Israel, but for the whole world, for every single person. That is who Jesus is. He is the one through whom salvation and deliverance from death comes to God's people. Matthew 1 Verse 20, where it's announced the birth of Christ. What does the angel say? He says that, quote, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jehovah is salvation. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. See, we can see Jesus and Joshua just by looking at their names. That Jesus is the one to actually bring about all of God's promises to God's people, to the world. But not only his name, secondly, I want you to see also his victory. 
His name, secondly, his victory. Because as we've already mentioned, just in kind of going back to Joshua chapter 12, Joshua's victories that we see throughout the book of Joshua are just unparalleled. In fact, that's uh, one of the things that I've often said. If, you, if you're trying to read through the Bible, maybe you can make it through Leviticus. When we get to Joshua chapter 13 and you go through the rest of the book of Joshua, you're going to have a hard time. <laughs> Because once you get to Joshua 13, there's all these victories that are accounted for. And then basically the rest of Joshua from about chapter 13 to about chapter 23 is basically just like real estate listings. (laughs) It's basically like this tribe gets this part of the land and this tribe gets another part of the land and, and so on and so forth. And what is it trying to tell us? It's trying to tell us that Joshua is a man of, of almost unmatched, unrivaled sort of, uh, uh, sort of battlefield acumen, so to speak. He is so adept at bringing his people into this land that almost no one can stand against him. And that's sort of the legacy of this book. It's, it's accounting. It's sort of a resume of Joshua's victories. And this is where we get some of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. Uh, Joshua chapter 6. What's that? It's the defeat of Jericho. Chapter 8 is the defeat of Ai. Chapter 10 is the defeat of the five Amorite kings. Where that amazing moment where Joshua says to the sun, stand still. And it does. (laughs) Or Joshua chapter 11. You know what that records? That records the the conquest of all of northern uh, Canaan. And then in chapter 12, there's the defeat of king after king after king. So you get the point. All of this is a victory that is being achieved for the people of God through the person of God, Joshua. And it's comprehensive victory. Nothing is left untouched, so to speak. All of Israel's enemies were defeated in the wake of Joshua's triumph. Notice chapter 11. Why, why do we see all these victories after victories? Joshua 11 Look at verse 23. It tells us, So Joshua took the whole land, the land of promise, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Notice, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. (laughs) What was promised to Moses is achieved and fulfilled and brought about through Joshua decisively and definitively. Notice uh, uh, just a couple of places. Notice chapter 1 verse 5. Did you catch this phrase? It's a phrase that appears uh, two other times along with this reference in this book and it's amazing. Notice Joshua 1.5. God tells Joshua... No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Notice chapter 10. On the brink of war, as they're facing this axis of powers, these five Amorite kings. Notice chapter 10. Look at verse 8. Notice what God tells Joshua. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua 11, verse 6, same thing. They're on the brink of war. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. No one's going to be able to stand against you, Joshua. In fact, the, in, in the King James, it sort of has this idea that they're going to, st- the, the, the people that Israel are going to face is as if they're facing an army of one man. That's how utterly de- defeated Israel's em- enemies are going to be. It's, it's not even a contest. Joshua brings about this sweeping victory for God's people, ushering them into this, this, this land of promise, ushering them by this way of deliverance into this land of promise, sweeping victory for God's people, which, in my mind, it makes me think of Jesus on the cross. Why? Well, Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read, read, go to a couple passages really quick. Colossians 2, what do we read here? Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh 
The circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him you know what that phrase triumphing over them in him and it's the same phrase that appears in first corinthians or second second corinthians chapter number two where it talks about this triumphal procession it's this idea that when a roman is has this sort of roman sort of allusion to it of a roman sort of general this guy coming back from the battlefield and he's marching through town it's like you know a, a super bowl team having their victory parade it's utter defeat everyone else has lost everyone else they can't argue with it they won The Roman general won. He defeated the enemies. And the same idea is applied to Christ. No one can argue with it. He puts every single enemy of God's people to an open shame. He cancels our debt. He utterly leaves the devil defanged. Everything is done. He has triumphed. Sweeping victory. Hebrews chapter 2. One of my favorite. We just went through Hebrews at my church. Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is what Jesus does. He, def- he leaves every enemy utterly defeated. See, Joshua makes us think of Christ and his defeat of Israel's enemies. Joshua 10.24, if you can flip back there, I just want you to see this, this cool little note. Joshua 10, 24, it's at the end of that passage where it's talking about the five Amorite kings being utterly defeated. And it says, And when they had brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone out with them, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. (laughs) Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. Makes me think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What does 1 Corinthians 15 say? 1 Corinthians 15 verses 25 and 26. For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's Christ. Just like Joshua put his foot on the necks of Israelites' enemies, that's what Jesus has done. He's put his feet on the necks of every single enemy of God the Father. And he's lead them, left them utterly defeated, entirely trounced. That's who Jesus is. He's the true and better Joshua who delivers his people through an even more emphatic defeat of sin and death. That's who he is. See, we can see Jesus in Joshua through his name, through his victory. But lastly, lastly, I want you to see through his rest. Through his rest. Because going back to the book of Joshua, Joshua is given that responsibility to lead the people of God into the land of God that he could promise to him. As, the, as we've been noting and highlighting, it's the actual fulfillment bringing to completion this promise that God had given uh, all the way back to Abraham, but even, even to Moses himself, that they would, the people of God would be led into that land of promise. Look again, Joshua chapter 1, verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, rise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. It's yours, I'm giving it to you. 
Jump down to verse 10. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go into, take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. What was promised to Moses is being realized in Joshua. And this was fulfilled in chapters 3 and 4 as Israel in that monumental moment crosses over the Jordan. It's a colossal scene, so to speak, in the history of the people of God. As they are being ushered into the place that finally and fully is bringing about what God had promised to them. And this is why God wanted them to remember it. Uh, Go with me, um, chapter 4 of Joshua, look at verse 21. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? If you remember, as they crossed over, God commanded Joshua to build an altar, build a monument. Get 12 stones, build this monument. Why? Well, he tells us why. What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. He wants them to remember what he's done on their behalf, bringing them into this land of promise. God brought this about. For his people, this land that also promised rest. Uh, I know I'm jumping around. Chapter 1, look at verse 13. Joshua is talking to the tribes and he says, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord, your God, is providing you, notice, a place of rest and will give you this land. This is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10, which says, When you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety. That's what's being fulfilled. They're stepping into this land. It's not that they're just having a property. It's they're, they're having a place of rest, of safety of security, of of being settled. As we mentioned before, the exodus is over. No more wandering, no more living as nomads. They are settled in a place of rest, in a place of security. All of this was accomplished in Joshua. I love these verses. Look at chapter 21. Look at verse 43. After all of the counting of all the, the different allotments of the lands... Notice what it says. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not One word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. What an amazing statement. That through Joshua, every single syllable of God's promises to God's people was brought about. But the point is that this promised rest for God's people... It was true, it was a true rest, but it wasn't the truest rest. It's just a shadow. A shadow and a copy of the substance that is given to us in Jesus and the rest that he gives us. You see, that's the amazing thing. If we believe that everything is fulfilled in Jesus, that what Joshua is happening here is true and it's real and it actually happened, but it's just an echo of what would actually happen in Jesus because the rest of the land of promise is nothing but a, a, just a, a copy and a shadow of the true rest that's found in the true and better Joshua. And this is found, believe it or not, in Hebrews. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 4. I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 4, 
in verse 8. In this particular section, the writer of Hebrews is making this argument. And he's leading the people that were in this church that he was writing to to see how Jesus is better than than Moses, than the prophets. Notice verse 8. He's talking about rest. He says, For if Joshua, Hebrews 4, 8, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What's he talking about here? If God in later generations promised his people rest, then it wouldn't, then what? What is he talking about here with the the people of Joshua entering their rest? What is he saying is, it's true and it's real, but it wasn't ultimate. There was another rest to come. A truer and better rest. A truer and better Sabbath. That's Jesus. See, Jesus' rest is a rest from all of our striving, from all of our laboring, from all of our working, from all of our scratching, from all of our crawl, clawing, To earn the favor of God. That's what he is. The favor of God, the righteousness of God is what? It's a gift extended to us through the true and better Joshua. Through his death, he has put sin to death. And he offers you his righteous life for free. All that you have to do is believe See, there's a, I, I, could, I could preach this, but I won't. Um, Hebrews chapter 4 and 3 are amazing. Because what the writer is doing, he's taking you back to numbers. Remember that time when Joshua, when he was but a spy? And at Kadesh Barnea, what happens? They see the land of promise, and the people get freaked out. So they don't go into God's promised rest. Why? Disbelief. That was the only thing that stopped them, remember? They saw the giants, they got scared. Nah. And so then what happens? 40 years of wandering. And what hindered them from entering God's promised rest? Unbelief. See, with Jesus, the same thing happens to us. The only thing that is hindering us from entering God's promised rest is unbelief. He's the fulfillment of the promise. He's delivered everything for us. He says, just believe. And my victory is yours. My righteousness is yours. My record is yours. My debt, or your debt is canceled in me. Everything that I have is yours. The only thing that's stopping you is your own unbelief. That's what is being given to us in Jesus. His rest is the it is finishedness, if I can make up that word, of the cross. That when he went there, he really did do it all. Do you believe, do you believe that we say that he, that, he, that he finished it there? But do you actually live like it? Do we actually live like he finished it? Or are you still trying to white-knuckle your way into a better standing with God? My friends, you can't. Jesus is your standing. Jesus, in Colossians 3, you stand in the shadow of Christ. He is your standing. He is your rest. He is your victory. He is your name. He is your hope and your life. And that's what, that's what should change the way we read that passage. Matthew 11, verse 28. What does Jesus say? What, he invites us into that rest. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We don't like that. We like to earn. We love to win. We love to be able to say and hang our hat on a hook and be, look what I have accomplished. That's why in Hebrews 4, by the way, What's the next verse? Hebrews 4.11. Let us, this is a confounding phrase, strive to enter that rest. What is he talking about? How do we strive to enter rest? Because we have to remember that it is really finished. We don't often remember that. Our natural mode is what? I can earn it. I can win it. I can do it. Now, I don't, no, I don't, I don't need the Holy Spirit. I can get this on my own. 
Striving to enter rest is a conscious choice of belief, just like at Kadesh Barnea, that it was really all given to them. They just had to believe. We have to strive to remember that because our natural mode is to, what can I do to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus says, believe. <coughs> See, that's, this is the invitation that Jesus gives us. This is what's on the table. It's the promise of a future of never-ending rest. And that f- promise of never-ending rest in the future also has an impact on how we rest in the here and now. Because as Doug was saying earlier, how is the church going to be united? You meet at the corner. You meet at Jesus. You see that Jesus is the point of it all. And yeah, there's, there's, there's certain doctrines we should argue about and there's certain things that we should hold and grasp and we should let people know that this is not true, this is not biblical. But I think more than anything else, what the church should be known for is what it stands for. is that it has a king and it has a lord and it's Christ. It's not all the things that we're against, it's the thing that we're known for. It's Christ. It's Jesus. He's the fulfiller. He's the law fulfiller. Who has eclipsed the lawgiver? The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, the true and better Joshua. And he has come to deliver his people from their sins. Point blank. That's what he's done. This is Jesus, the one who has. who is the captain of God's people, the one who brings about all that God has promised, the one who actually lives up to his word because he is the word, the word of God made flesh. You see, in Jesus, we have so many different uh, ways to see his accomplishments. That's the beauty about the Bible. The Bible is like a diamond. You turn it, and you turn on each side, each side it refracts light and it's going to give you an even more beautiful picture of who Jesus is. Joshua is going to give you this picture. The Psalms are going to give you another. The Gospels are going to give you another. The King, books of Kings are going to give you another. Each time you go to the Bible, you're learning about God's revealed Son. Yes, you're reading history. Yes, you're reading actual things that happened. But that's the beauty about the Bible. There's two storylines going on. History, man's history, and God's. And God's history is brought about, it finds its climax in Christ himself. The true and better Joshua. Let us pray.